Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1, please. I was thinking just a moment ago, last week was Labor Day weekend, and I mean, yeah, people like the day off, but nobody really cares about Labor Day. It's not, it's a sacred thing. And I think about today and what today is, it's September 11th, the 21st anniversary of um, one of the most significant events in American history. For anybody who's probably younger than about 80, the most significant event in our lifetime. And it's an event that so significantly impacted everyone who remembers that day, who was old enough to remember that day. It's amazing, and I know that I'm younger than many of you, but it's amazing to me that people are now turning 21 who, it's a history lesson to them. They weren't even born yet when it happened. Um, and again, just such a monumental event and something that I think in many ways we are still living in the shadow of. And so I think it's important to remember that today. In the Bible, we see lots of places where we're called to remember things. Most importantly, the gospel. We do that through worship, through prayer, through reading God's word, through communion, which itself is meant to point to the gospel. Um, if you look at the holidays in the Old Testament, so much of an emphasis on remembrance and remembering. And that I think that it's something with how God has formed us as humans that it's important to remember significant things. And um, so I just wanted to say that I, I couldn't help but think about what today is. And again, we all have our own story. I was a sophomore in high school on that morning and found out from the principal who came over the announcements and um, I feel like I can practically give an hour by hour account of the rest of that day. But again, I know for many, it's, it's the same type of experience. Galatians chapter 1 is where we are this morning, and I will read verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the opportunity we have to worship you. And on this 21st anniversary of the September 11th attacks, Lord, we, we think of people who in significant and major ways still struggle in the aftermath of that. People who were first responders, people who were injured on that day, people who were family members of those who were lost on that day. Lord, we pray for them. And Lord, we think about the thousands and thousands of servicemen and women who have in the years since fought, served in the global war on terrorism against that evil. Lord, we think of the lives that have been lost fighting for that. Lord, we pray for them as well. Lord, we pray for our time as we study in your word this morning. We have so many things to be thankful and to praise you for. 
Lord, may we have a, a heart of gratitude that we have a loving God and a gracious and merciful Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. One last thing before I get into the sermon. I forgot to mention this. Last week we mentioned that we had reached our goal. We were raising money for a hospital in Ghana, which so thankful for that. And once again, thanks to everyone who gave to support that wonderful cause. Um, but we also exceeded our goal. Our goal was $3,000. We actually raised $4,716.19. Um, and so, yeah, thank you to everyone. That's an amazing thing. And so empty tomb at a champagne will match that up to $3,000. So that means it'll be $7,716.19, uh, which will go a long way. And so, again, thank you to everybody. In 2007... A clerk at a Pittsburgh-area grocery store was approached by a man who wanted change. The bill was counterfeit, and the man wanted to exchange the counterfeit bill for real money. For him, it seemed like a good plan. But the idea failed when the cashier became suspicious when they were handed a $1 million bill. In 2018, an Egyptian man went to a local zoo and saw the zebra enclosure. But when looking at the zebra, he noticed something odd. The zebra's stripes were smudged. It was a fake zebra. It was actually a donkey with stripes painted on it. And then in 2013, at a zoo, another zoo, this time in China, they tried to pass off a large dog as a lion. There are lots of fakes and frauds out there. And in a fallen world, it should be no surprise that there would even be fraudulent gospels that people share. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul was dealing with a counterfeit gospel that had infiltrated the churches in Galatia. And as we continue in Galatians this morning, the main idea of this passage is that there is one gospel in a world full of counterfeits. And we'll look at our passage this morning in three parts. Deserting the gospel, distorting the gospel, and defending the gospel. First part. Deserting the gospel. Now, before I get into this passage, I want to point out something in Paul's letters. I mentioned this last week, but the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. They all have an opening salutation. That's what I preached from last week, the opening in Galatians. But in his other letters, Paul next goes into a section of thanksgiving, where he expresses his thankfulness for the church. I'll show you some examples of what I mean. After the opening salutation of Romans, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at, least, at last succeed in coming to you. Thanksgiving. After the opening salutation of Philippians, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll read just one more example. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. I love the background of the churches in Corinth. They were a mess, rampant issues with sexual sin, lots of internal strife and dysfunction, and yet we still see Paul's thankfulness for these churches. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you all. Galatians is the only letter where we do not see any sort of thanksgiving from Paul to the churches. Look at how glowing Paul is in those other openings. And in Galatians, he's finished his opening salutation, and what does he say next? I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Why is he so much more severe in Galatia than with Corinth? Because their spiritual issues were a bigger deal than the Corinthians' moral issues. The world tends to put more value in the outward. You can be spiritually dead inside, but so long as you behave, you're labeled a good person. But truly living, fruitful, transformed, loving lives involves living to the glory of Christ. And Paul is addressing people who have been led astray. Just as a brief reminder of Paul's history with these churches... We covered his ministering and preaching in Acts chapters 13 and 14. He had faced opposition. But we had also seen a lot of fruitfulness and people responding to the gospel in faith. People had been, Paul had been planting churches, installing elders. The Lord had been at work in these journeys. And yet since that time, many had been led astray. And so after those successes... And seeing people turning away, the only word that Paul could use was astonishment. This quick departure from the truth was similar to Exodus, where Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the word of the Lord. And his fellow Israelites grow impatient and make a golden calf. But with the Galatians, Paul cannot believe that they're turning away from the gospel. One of the important things that we see from this passage is that we need to be nurturing and discipling new believers. Again, we've talked a lot this past year about personal evangelism, and that's important. Sharing the gospel, making Christ known. But once someone comes to faith, we don't just leave them to themselves. New believers are fragile. That's part of why the church is so important. There's lots of reasons why the church is important. But a big one is discipleship. The church is a community where we love and support one another, where we pray for each other and bear one another's burdens, and a community where people exhort one another and call one another to holiness and godly living. And the Great Commission 
Jesus doesn't tell the apostles to go out and make converts of all the nations. He tells them to go and make disciples of all the nations. There are people who want to go it alone. That's not biblical. We need each other. Otherwise, it can lead to a faith that is very immature, uninformed, and which is never challenged or seriously questioned. Or of a faith that is susceptible to being led astray or into error. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In verse 7, Paul is quick to clarify, not that there is another one. There is only one gospel. We have one Savior who is the one way to God. It's not that we can believe in one gospel and someone else can believe in a different gospel and both of those be true. There is one gospel because there is one Savior. We come to our second point, the distortion of the gospel. Why were people so quickly deserting and turning away from the gospel? Paul will continue on that thought in the second part of verse 7. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There is one gospel in a world full of counterfeits. Again, how is the gospel being distorted? There were groups of people who were trying to get recent converts to continue living in accordance with the law of the Old Testament. We see a picture of this in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, in Acts 15, they're not in Galatia, but it seems to be a similar philosophy that's influencing this. And here's something that's important about it. It's not that they were denying that you needed Jesus, but they were saying that there were additional requirements needed for salvation. To borrow an idea from John Stott, a late New Testament scholar, they, they were saying that we needed to finish what Christ began. Paul will specifically oppose this idea later in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 21, when he says, If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The gospel is not our works plus the works of Christ. It is entirely the works of Christ. There's a quote. It's been attributed to different people, so I'm not sure who originated it. But it's this idea that you contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. And this is no small discrepancy. When we add law to the gospel, we are robbing Christ of his glory. The reason why we love Jesus, the reason why we live for Jesus, the reason why we worship Jesus is because we have a Savior who died on the cross to forgive our sins. And when we add law to the gospel, we are saying that Jesus' death was not truly sufficient. Jesus didn't quite do enough. Jesus needed our help to save us. And that is not the gospel. And again, that's no small matter of disagreement. Oh, you think this and I think that. No, there is no other gospel. It's a conflict between truth and falsity. And so people try to add to the gospel. But here's what's interesting about so many of the false gospels of our world. They're so often so subtle. 
The people who had infiltrated these churches in Galatia weren't disregarding Jesus or saying that Jesus didn't matter. They just sort of tweaked the message of the gospel. It just added a little bit more. Bad theology is so often close enough to good theology to seem right. To varying degrees, many people still believe that it is their own obedience which is the basis for their salvation. Some people make the Galatian error and attempt to add works to the gospel. Others leave the gospel out altogether and act as though salvation is entirely a matter of works. Really, that's how most of the world's religions ultimately operate, where they view it as operating on some sort of moral scale and needing to do enough good to outweigh the bad. People like that idea because it gives a sense of control. It seems just that if we deserve a reward, we'll get it. And if we don't deserve it, we'll get some sort of punishment. But the issue is sin, that none of us deserve any sort of eternal reward, that we cannot be good enough, which is why we need the gospel. Bad theology is so often close enough to good theology to seem right. Bruce helped me out a little bit this week. I was asking some questions about electricity. I don't know if you knew this or not. Most of our power in town is actually not from the windmills. Uh, most of the power we get in town is actually from coal or natural gas. It is quite the process for electricity to get to our homes. Now, the actual way electricity gets transferred, it has to be generated either through coal or gas or through renewable sources like wind, solar, hydro. From the power plant, the electricity goes through transformers and then through high voltage transmission lines. From the transmission lines, the electricity goes through various substations where the voltage is being decreased. There's a substation south of Cisna. Electricity goes on a final leg of the journey from that substation through more power lines to our houses. That's the process. The gospel is that we are sinners and that Jesus came into the world. He is fully God and fully man. He was prophesied in the Old Testament. He lived a life without sin. He suffered, was crucified, was died, was buried, is risen, ascended, and lives today. And salvation is given to all who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that we are justified by faith. And when people go and change things, they're no longer preaching the gospel. If you tried to run power lines from your house directly to the power company, it wouldn't work. Catch on fire. And you couldn't just have power lines going from your house and not ultimately going to the substation. Then it wouldn't have a connection. You wouldn't have electricity. There's a right way and a wrong way to go about powering our homes. If we aren't connecting to the source the right way, you'll be left in darkness. And if we're hearing a false gospel, we run the risk of being left in spiritual darkness. We come to our third point, defending the gospel. Paul continues his response in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul's point is that anyone who contradicts the gospel is wrong. Even if Paul himself started preaching another gospel, even if the angels 
started preaching another gospel. That would be wrong. The gospel does not change. For the person who preaches a false gospel, Paul says, let them be accursed. That's Old Testament type thinking. The Israelites could not tolerate forbidden things within their community. That which is sinful and which will lead a person away from God and which attempts to rob God of his glory cannot be tolerated. I'll give just one example from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Now, with this Deuteronomy passage, what it's saying is that for a person who brought a forbidden idol into his or her home, that he or she would be devoted to destruction. That is the seriousness with which the Old Testament takes idolatry. And there's other passages we can look at. Now, Paul's not calling for violence or anything like that, but he is taking heresy very seriously. He's using as strong of language as he can use here. That this is no small disagreement between him and these false teachers. That the gospel itself is at stake. Verse 9, Paul repeats himself. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now it's possible that Paul says that twice for emphasis. It's also possible that he is repeating something that he had previously said to the churches in Galatia. Or both could be true. There is no tolerance for false gospels. And for the people who spread this false gospel, it's not just that they believed a false message, but that they were actively preaching and proclaiming it. Now, there are all sorts of disagreements in churches. There are all sorts of theological disagreements. When do they rise to the level of urgency where Paul can call on those who disagree to be accursed? Now, again, that's certainly for an idea that is heretical. There are other places where we see disagreements in the New Testament. For instance, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes of a disagreement that he had with Peter. But he doesn't call him a curse. He doesn't call it heresy. Not all theological disagreements are created equally. I've talked about this before in our Sunday night study. But it's this idea of dogmatic rank. You have some issues that are so important that to reject them is to undermine the very foundations of the gospel. And that's what's happening here in Galatians. Anything that undermines the supremacy or sufficiency of Christ, anything that adds works to our salvation, these are gospel-defining issues. A theology that undermines the Trinity or the divinity of Christ, a theology that minimizes the Bible or rejects the scriptures as God's holy word, Those are just a few examples. Then you have secondary issues, which are still important. They're still significant theological convictions. But they're issues where you can appreciate 
that a faithful believer in the gospel who loves Jesus, who believes in the Bible, can have a different view. Perhaps it's a big enough issue where you wouldn't attend a church that disagreed on it, but where you do believe that it can be a brother or sister in Christ. Differing views on baptism would be an example of that. At this church, we do believer's baptism. Personally, I wouldn't serve here if we didn't. But I can genuinely appreciate that there are Christians, people who love the gospel and believe in Christ, who practice infant baptism. Calvinism versus Arminianism, I would consider to be a secondary issue. How you practice communion, church governance, how you view the spiritual gifts could all be, I would argue, considered secondary issues. Some might disagree with what I say is primary or secondary. I'm not saying that I settle the debate, but I will say this. Not everything can be a primary issue because what happens when you make everything a primary issue is that you end up having no church. And I've seen that happen. People have a long list of criteria and no church meets them all. And so they end up going nowhere. It is important that we major in the majors. And the gospel is certainly the major issue. And that's why Paul is so adamant that it's the most major. I'll say one more thing about dogmatic rank and why it matters. That a church can be in line with the gospel, but get out of whack with its priorities and elevate things which are not of primary significance to that level. I'll give a story. A few years ago, before I ever had interviewed with this church, I was talking to another church. And their preaching, their Sunday school, their youth groups, all of it was based out of an Answers in Genesis curriculum. And I'm not knocking Answers in Genesis, but that was all that they did. And that basically became the whole focal point of their teaching was just in Genesis. They took an important issue and made it the most important issue. And I'm not saying that they went this far, but when you do that, it can be very easy to lose sight of the gospel when you make something that is not the main thing, the main thing. Ironically, churches can also make that same mistake in the opposite direction, of focusing too much on things like end times theology, which is again important. But there are some pastors and ministries where everything they look at and talk about is from a eschatological end times. Lens. It's an important issue, but it's not the most important issue. Neither of those things is the gospel. There is one gospel. Paul preaches a gospel of grace. And as I've been saying throughout the message, there were others who were adding works and law to that message. Back in our passage, Paul is defending the gospel. False teachers were adding to the message. It appears that their attack on Paul was that Paul was actually the one who was guilty of preaching a watered-down gospel. That they were preaching the real message, Paul didn't go far enough. He was only preaching part of the message. He was just preaching an easy gospel that required nothing of you. That's why in verse 10, Paul says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's saying that he's not trying to win a popularity contest. If he was, he wouldn't be preaching the gospel at all. In this passage, we see the seriousness with which Paul treats false gospels. For some, they'll read Paul's response and think that he's being too harsh or too overzealous. But he isn't if you believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He has a righteous indignation at the gospel being distorted. Any message which robs Christ of his glory and which denies that he is the way is not the gospel. There are plenty of very nice people who believe in these various false gospels, which are leading straight away from the cross and straight away from Christ. It is love which must motivate a person to have a concern for the truth and for the proclamation of the gospel. And so to really love your neighbor is to care about the gospel that they're believing in. In our modern world, the word love so often gets co-opted as tolerance. To really love someone is to tolerate what they do. To oppose what someone does or to say someone's wrong or to call something sin, that's intolerant and therefore unloving. And the modern world even carries that over to the gospel itself. The world tells us that we should be hands-off. We should coexist, as the bumper sticker says. The world wants to affirm religious pluralism. Paul was confronting a false gospel of adding works to the law. I would argue that a big issue in our modern, postmodern world is the false gospel of saying that we don't need the cross in the first place. For some, it's that you're good enough just as you are. For others, it's the message that a loving God would already forgive you. A loving God wouldn't punish you. He's loving. For others, it's the false gospel of saying that there can be many gospels. That all faiths are basically teaching the same thing. All roads lead to God. All faiths are teaching truth. If that's true, Christianity can't be true. Because we have a Savior who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you can't have it both ways. For people who want to believe what everyone and anyone believes to be true, then what Jesus said cannot be true. Now, I've just broadly described some of the false gospels of modern America. One of those false gospels I just mentioned might actually even resonate with some people in this room, in your heart of hearts. Because again... Bad theology is often close enough to good theology to seem right. The first step is to know the truth of the gospel, to know it in your heart and soul, to know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. But then how do you respond to false gospels? It's a matter of responding with truth because of love. It's that you care about others around you knowing the truth. We live in a world full of false gospels, and they are leading people astray. There is only one gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, 
and which points to grace and eternal life. It can be a challenge because the gospel of Jesus Christ totally cuts against the grain of the gospels our world accepts. And it's easier to do nothing. The world would prefer you to do nothing. But are you seeking the approval of man or of God? If we're trying to seek the approval of man, then the easiest thing to do is to say nothing and to have a live and let live approach. But God desires us to share the truth because of love. Because there is one gospel and a world full of counterfeits. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for this day. We thank you that we have a Savior who died on the cross. Lord, may we praise him. May we follow him. May we share that message with the world. May we be transformed by it day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.